Welcome to La Cura Podcast. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. La Cura will take you on a journey at the intersection of health, healing, and social justice. We will engage in conversations about decolonizing our health and reclaiming traditional ways of well-being and healing. We will explore and honor our multiple identities, cultures, traditions, and remedios. This offering is brought to you by Mi Gente, a political home of Latinx and Chicanx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-poor, pro-queer, because our communities are all that and more. Welcome to La Cura, everybody. Very excited to have one of my favorites today, Kara Page. Uh, but before we talk to her, I want to tell you a little bit more about her. She is a Black queer feminist, cultural memory worker, curator, and organizer for the past 30 plus years. She has organized with Black, Indigenous people of color, queer, trans, lesbian, gay, bi, intersex, gender, non-conforming liberation movements in the U.S. and the Global South at the intersections of racial, gender, and economic justice, reproductive justice, healing justice, and transformative justice. She is leading a new project called Changing Frequencies, an archival memory and cultural organizing abolitionist project building power with communities who want to confront, heal from, and transform and dismantle the historical and contemporary exploitative practices and abuses of the medical industrial complex. She's all that and so much more. I really wanted Kara to end this season because um, a lot of the work of La Cura, a lot of my personal work um, in, um, you know, politicized healing and healing justice work has been inspired by Kara. And I'll tell you a little tiny story before I, I, I you know, uh, begin to have a conversation with Kara, which is about three years ago, four years ago, I decided to pivot my work from detention, you know, support, immigration, immigrant rights, criminalization sort of work here in Arizona um, to to really focus and center the healing and the well-being, the resilience of migrant people like myself and, and organizers and also folks who have been in movement, undocumented and migrant people. And I remember having a conversation with many people about it. And there was one person who I'll give a shout out to right now, Below, um, who was at that time working with Mi Gente, who was like, oh, that's awesome what you're thinking about doing. You really need to meet Kara Page. And at that point, I wasn't articulating my work as healing justice because I was really a, a, like, you know, in the trenches organizer who could tell you all kinds of stuff about organizing, but hadn't been really exposed, even though I went, I was in spaces with Kara. I had never met her. I had never, um, you know, gotten a chance to talk to her or learned about her work. And he was like, you've got to meet Kara Page. And I was like, Kara Page, so I started Googling and found Kara on Google, literally, <laughs> her bio. This story I've never told you, Kara. Um, and so I was like, I got to meet Kara Page. So later in my life, uh, Caitlin Breedlove, who I love and appreciate, um, is like, I know Kara. I can introduce you to Kara. So I just want to say that, um, yeah, that um, I really was excited I'm excited to have this conversation with you, have you on the podcast, because 
this journey very early on sort of started with just like, you know, this this conversation with B. And then now I'm so blessed and grateful to be in relationship with you and in practice. So welcome to the show, Kara. Yes. Yes. It's an honor to be here and to see you or hear you manifest this dream of body of work. Well, um, I want to start just by asking, you know, how, how uh, you're doing now. It's May 2021. We are 14 months into this, you know, pandemic madness and mm-hmm. a little bit of a, I think, mm-hmm. rising a bit from the ashes of a lot that's been burnt down, um, broken down. Yes. So curious about what has been potentially one thing that you might have sort of left behind, a little tiny thing you might have left behind in a pre-pandemic world and any highlight, any highlight now and breakthrough uh, that you might have noticed. It could be tiny, it could be big. I don't know. Just curious. Yes. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's deep that we're in this global pandemic. And I, my word is integration. You know, we're still integrating what it changed for us. And it's really hard to hear people say, I'm so glad we're back to normal. And I was like, what? <laughs> Pre-COVID things were not good. Mm-hmm. So let us not go back mm-hmm. to normal. Let us go back. Let us go towards change and something different than we had before. Um, because of what COVID unearthed for us, right? In terms of disparities, poverty, violence, policing, all the things, white supremacy, you know the deal. So I think what I left behind though, honestly, was my um, my strategy to do multiple things all at the same time. I was I was doing a lot of coaching, facilitation, cultural work, all around healing, generational trauma, the medical industrial complex, racial justice, disability justice, all these different movements I was touching, but I feel that I was not being true to myself around cultural production as my practice, spiritual, cultural, um, medicinal practice, literally creating art, creating cultural work that is deeply spiritual and deeply rooted in the medicines of my ancestors. Um, And literally changing my work, I have a project called Changing Frequencies because I truly believe to create is to literally change the vibration um, of what we are resisting, what we are memorializing, what we are um, amplifying and creating. And so... I, turned, I flipped the script and I stopped on the facilitation, um, turned down the volume on the coaching, although I love my coaches, I love my coaches. Um, in movement, um, coaching is key. And I said, I'm be more useful to you as a cultural memory worker, doing my work rooted in catalyzing change through really understanding art, the practice of art and creation as, as a medicinal strategy for our liberation. And so I went into like 70% cultural, political production solely on the MIC and healing justice work. And everything opened up. When I made that turning point in January 2021, I said, well, and who showed up and who, and I got tested too, who people said, well, don't you want to come back over here? No, I'm going to cut those ties for now and just focus. And I flipped the script and now I'm doing 70% cultural memory production work um, 
in partnership with amazing artists and organizers, researchers, and archivists. And I know that this, this is the path that I need to be on. Um, so that feels very different from the pre-pool mm. of COVID. Just because something's a good opportunity, yeah. sounds really good, yes. doesn't mean you're supposed to yes. do it, right? You yeah. feel me? Yeah, you yeah. feel me? Yes. And I think being in the stillness and the grief um, and the disarray of COVID makes you wonder, okay, what am I really here for? What What do I really want to do um, to change the systems that are not working for us in the height of a global pandemic? I mean, you just had to pay attention. It was too hard to miss Oh, some things I just can't stand, and I can't stand by. You said two words, cultural memory. Uh, yes. Tell us more about that. I will. Thank you. Um, I've been using those that term very specific to, for myself as a Black person of mixed ancestry, Cultural work is deeply rooted in dream space, uh, memory space, to understand that in order for us to really transform as conscious beings, how do we literally tap into the memory of our people, our ancestors? It's part of the colonialist project, right? Part of colonization, genocide, slavery, to disassociate us from our memory. Our collective memories, our individual memories, our collective dreams, our individual dreams. And I truly believe cultural memory work says, how do you tap into what you already know to be true? And how are we using um, cultural work to remember practices, traditions, medicines of our ancestral lineage? Um, For me, that is a Black seminal ancestry um, that is a Black Southern ancestry. It's even in the complication of being of mixed ancestry of Euro- European ancestry, what that has meant um, on my legacy and journey of understanding where is the medicine most useful <laughs> for my ancestors? Um, and where do I recommit to cultural work that honors Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer and trans, disabled communities, communities that I am in relationship, community resistance to, that I deeply want to remember our resiliency, remember our imprint of power and resistance, and pull that forth in any kind of creative political work that I'm doing. I mean, that's such a profound place to arrive and I know there's no way that you got there mm-hmm. this year last year the year before like you no. were probably like <laughs> how that dream space right you're talking about yeah. is that a that's is right. that a place where some of this sort of manifested for you some of the some of the messages that like that autonomic you know ache or Yes, it's how I came to healing justice, right? It's how I came to be an architect or a conduit of healing justice, not as a not as a uh, practice, but as a political strategy or political framework. Already knowing our ancestors to survive attempted genocide and slavery had already tapped into 
being conduits, as healers, as witches, as curanderas, as root workers, as birth workers, whatever we call it, I've always been intuitively aware of tapping into dream space is resistance, right? You know this, you're a witch, Um, right? And so how do we actually center that as a liberatory strategy? right? How do we honor dream space? And I pull this from very Black feminist, global South feminist ideas that if we're not looking at the the literal um, cellular memory of our people and not looking at dreams, ancestral dreams, our own dreams as part of the patterns or messages of what our truth is to define and decide what our liberation will look like, that I feel we are doing ourselves a disservice if we're not taking those levels of consciousness seriously. Um, And certainly Afrofuturism Mm -hmm. speaks of that, but as someone born in the 70s, Black, Indigenous, Global South feminists, I've been talking about this forever, Gloria and Sotula, right, Audre Lorde, so many, so many that have guided my path in understanding dream space being a conduit um, changing vibration is something that I can actually do as a Black queer feminist healer, which on the planet. Believe How early that. were you aware that you were, forget about the feminism, because a lot of it is instinctual. So you're like, I'm a feminist, even though I don't have a true, word. True, true. That's right. But how it's early medicine. were yes. you aware of that you were a healer, a bruja, like, you know, that that was that was inside of you as a, as a child, probably, what did that look like? Ooh, it was. Oh, wow. You I love I love to ask people. <laughs> you are very good at this. I've been a bruja since 1979. No, I was at nine consciously building altars or sacred spaces um, as protection um, during a heightened moment of violence in my family. And... I can honestly tell you that I truly believe it kept me alive um, because I understood from somewhere, I understood if I build literal medicine mm-hmm. that protects me, um, I didn't call it spirit guides. I didn't right. call it I'm a witch. I, none of that. I just had, I'm not kidding you, in four corners of my bedroom, oh my small bedroom. I'm grateful that I had my own room, right? That I could just power up and put medicine in each corner. Um, And at age nine, started to rely on that Mm -hmm. as my my medicine, as my practice for protection. And then it just keeps going from there. But that was a very poignant moment when I realized, oh, this is more than just piles of rocks and shells and coral and words. I'm doing something. (laughs) You know, I'm really doing something. And, and kept it all to myself. Didn't trust adults. In some cases, didn't trust other children. (laughs) Just did it for me um, because it was inside of the cosmology of, of healing from family violence and understanding, well, I can't let them take my medicine that's really powerful. And that's exactly what you're doing now. And you're changing frequencies work. Can you tell us a bit more about, about that? Yes, absolutely. So changing frequencies is a cultural memory 
project, um, as I mentioned, cultural memory being how do we understand the role of memory as a conduit for creating cultural um, performance, installations, sanctuaries. My work is in particular rooted in multimedia performance and installation. I partner with creative organizers, uh, artists, other cultural workers, healers, people who want to create, generate a space, a sanctuary, where we are actually paying homage or memorializing the loss of our people or the resistance of our people on the site or a site where there's been harms and abuse of the medical industrial complex, right? And so the medical industrial complex as an extension of prisons, detention centers, uh, privatized hospitals, psychiatric wards, any place that we have been that has used medical racism and scientific experimentation to pathologize our communities that has left us um, in harm's way, going to those sites or working with communities that have been deeply impacted by the loss of people at those sites and creating cultural installations is what Changing Frequencies is about. Um, definitely rooted in an abolitionist lens that we want to dismantle these systems to use these cultural memory installations as an opportunity to elevate story and to fight for the dismantling of these institutions, but also to memorialize those who have been lost or experimented on at the expense of uh, the colonization and the pathologies of the society that has allowed it to happen in the first place. It's so powerful how you just broke down what you were doing at nine years old. I know. And at every corner of your room <laughs> and yes. building altars, building sanctuary, naming yeah. how that built safety for you mm. around violence, um, yes. in an environment environment. And, and now with changing frequencies, you're doing this powerful work. That's the state violence, yeah. literally what you knew you had to do at nine. You're doing yes. exactly right now, which yes. is we cook, you know, installations and slash altars, right? That's right. Um, exactly. In places where um, violence has happened and mm -hmm. where there's a need to, I, you know, I assume also heal the space, heal the that's folks right. involved, that's those right. connected to those communities and those mm -hmm. in relationship to those who have suffered in this, those spaces. Yes. And also to even reclaim, reclaim space, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Reclamation, recovery, repair, um, and transmit new opportunities, right? So if, if we are not truly grieving from the loss of our people, to institutional experimentation or literally killing of our people under, under the guise of testing, or safety or security, then how then can we move into what we will create? What is the metamorphosis? What is possible when we're still aching and grieving? What has happened to our people? So really feeling consciously if we're not creating these spaces, um, it'll be harder to touch and transmit as possible as a counter narrative not even just counter as, as a transformative narrative of what we can create for our collective care and safety doesn't rely on these uh, atrocities
so um, more recently, two years ago in 2018, I produced with, and it was an honor to work with Ebony Noel Golden, a fantastic artist, choreographer, dreamscaper, architect, brilliant, badass Black woman from the South, from Texas, um, who runs Beverly's Arts Daughters Collaborative. And we came together. I was able to pull together a makeshift budget and said, please work with me. And she pulled together this phenomenal Black women troupe. And we moved through a timeline that's being co-curated and designed by another project that I partnered with, the Healing Histories Project. And that's a timeline on the medical industrial complex. And it shows sites from the 1400s to now of where different communities um, most impacted by colonization, slavery, and genocide, attempted genocide based on white supremacy, gender supremacy, ableist supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, any ways that our bodies were counted, quartered, measured, codified, categorized, right? As part of the colonialism um, and imperialism um, on our on our people, on our in this country and uh, in other countries. Although the focus of this timeline is the US, but certainly it's in conversation with sterilization abuse, massive sterilizations of different communities, including Puerto Rico, um, queer and trans, so on and so forth. It's enslaved people, indigenous people in this country. Um, we honed in on birth work, Black and indigenous birth work, as a system of not only care, but of resistance to birth the next generations. And the co-optation of Black birthing, or some people say midwifery, doulas, you know, some people say root workers, was to actually steal and take a medicinal strategy and I think liberatory practice and call us witches and um, demonize Black and Indigenous. Um, in the South in particular um, was our storyline of how do we understand Black birthing as liberatory and that it was controlled and contained as part of a white supremacist um, tactic. And with that, we wanted to honor uh, this performance piece is really understanding the relationship to sterilization abuse of Black women and Indigenous women in this country. Sorry, in the region, particularly the South, though. And then the, the criminalization of Black birth workers and Indigenous birth workers in the South. And understanding those two things working with each other um, to basically erase a lineage of birthing traditions, but also to literally attempt to remove our population, our people, <laughs> right? And understanding that this was a performative piece that really wrestled with um, the, the vibration of that. What does that mean to, to attempt to try to remove the birthing of a next generation? And Many of us in the global South can relate to that, absolutely. Um, in the South in particular, it still goes on, right? There's different ways it's happening. <laughs> the sterilization of these in detention centers and prisons, not just in the South, but in particular in the Southeast and Southwest because of how this country has been built. Using the South as a, as a place of practice, of institutional practice, because it's, it's so guarded as... Uh, oh, I'm using my words. It's so guarded as a, still a place of poverty um, and seen as 
migrant, Black, predominantly people of color and Indigenous people, and that we are not producing, right? Some, some, some Because of this anti-Southern lens of not producing intellect, not producing labor except for the wealthy elite, that it's still the anti-Southern bend in this country is so wide and large. It was an absolute plan um, in the reconstruction of this country, um, but then also in the reconstruction of this world, right? Look at the global South. So as we're understanding that, to unearth this particular line of birth work as a, as a cultural memory to honor women who were sterilized and practitioners that were disappeared or disrespected because they were seen as being um, demons or somehow um, painted as not being true practitioners because they weren't doctors. All of it is so deeply embedded in the medical industrial complex, um, trying to deny us and steal (laughs) our traditions. And so this piece, um, I really went in, but this piece was really to unearth that um, and use imagery and sound. And the intent was to have it at the um, former hospital, one of the hospitals in upstate New York um, that's escaping me, that had the largest amount of sterilizations in the state. Um, and even though the storyline, as I mentioned, was mainly about the South, we wanted to string the, 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 the strands of how how that deeply also affects black and brown communities all over this, all over the world. But that in New York, who would they target? People that are imprisoned, people that are institutionalized. So we wanted to have it on site at a former hospital, which is now a prison, which happens often and people don't even talk about. Psychiatric hospitals, right, that become prisons. Um, so, but we couldn't do it on site. So we had it at a, did it at a convening that was subverting policing and surveillance at Barnard College. And so that was just as good, but that was one partnership. You're, you're doing cultural memory work. You're doing homage work. You're doing elevation. Like what folks don't many times don't think about is the fact that our ancestors need to be elevated and that they're in another realm and that it is our responsibility still in this realm to continue to elevate their spirit. Um, And it's a reciprocal relationship, you know, they will support us, but we also need to be constantly elevating them so that they can actually become um, even more, it's even more powerful, right? They're they're in levels of elevation. And so the more that you remembered, uh, the more that our people are remembered, the more that are, it's almost like putting more and more energy into where they are so that it, it literally comes back to us. And I think you're doing really powerful uh, ancestor elevation work that will also come back to us and to the land and to the community. Um, and I, I so wish that that there was like a film a film person that was following you around um suggestion (laughs) because this would be an amazing documentary you know that could inspire so many others to to do you know possibly not the level of production that you do because you know you're amazing your practice is is very extent extensive but that can really encourage people to to do this kind of reclaiming work in their own little corner of the world, you know? 
changing frequencies is definitely trying to amplify it more. So many people, because we're talking, I mean, here we are looking at cum loops, right? And the finding all the children's bones. Here we are at the 23rd, I believe, anniversary of MOVE. Um, But finding that some of the, the children's bones, the girls that died in that MOVE bombing, shamefully, in that MOVE bombing, on Osage Avenue um, in Philadelphia are still being used for medical anthropology studies. I mean, you know, we could just go down the line, of course, understanding the the bones being found at the borders of Mexico and Texas, of Canada, um, of women, uh, all the ways that we need to elevate and understand how our collective bodies have been um, tested on, experimented on, made expendable. And I truly believe it's cyclical too, because some people say, oh, so you're only in the business of death. <laughs> or, and I was like, no, in, in the elevation of ancestors, it's also about what are we building? So I'm very much also in this place of where do we have transformation from cultural work that leads us towards what will we build and imagine so that this doesn't happen again? And again, and again. Yeah. And that's the business of death and birth. That's right. And, and life. Future, you yes, know? multiple futures. Yes. You know, between nine years old and now, it's like there's extensive <laughs> amount of work around this healing justice framework yes. that has evolved yes. in beautiful ways and now is is turned into a lot of things. It has. Um, and also healing history. So can you just tell us, you know, healing justice and just tell us a bit about how it came about as a framework? I can. I grew up knowing that my ancestors are from the South, Georgia, Florida, and North Carolina. I returned home, I say, to the South. Uh, my, my Black similar ancestors are from the South. And when I was organizing and learning how to organize in, in, how to organize in the South with multiple organizations like Project South and Sister Song and uh, Spark and... Uh, of course, Southerners on New Ground, right? Really deepening my analysis and political understanding of what liberation looks like through a Black, Indigenous, people of color lens and queer and trans lens, poor people rising up lens. It was always rooted in cultural work. It was always rooted in healing, but I was most intrigued that in movements in the early 2000s, post 9-11, you had a rise of suicides of Black youth organizers. You had a rise of people burning out. But I like to say people having breakthroughs, but people having breakdowns and people being asked or choosing to leave movement. And it made me wonder if we're going to keep losing battles because of increased fascism and xenophobia and all the things, white supremacy um, that exists, how then can we integrate tools and strategies that hold collective trauma? 
um, from loss of campaigns, from loss of uh, comrades who are being policed or disappeared, um, and then just from multiple generations of oppression and colonization. I started to do deep research on generational trauma and seeing a lot of indigenous feminists and black feminists wrestling with things like post-traumatic slave syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGroy or Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart doing a tremendous amount of work with tribal nations on intergenerational trauma, understanding on a cellular level the memory of attempted genocide, slavery, and colonization is in our collective bodies. How do you transform that generational trauma? And Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart speaking to, if you let the grief go unresolved and you don't break that cycle, it continues to manifest in generations ahead. And at the height of fascism in the early 2000s, looking very much like now, (laughs) in 2021, We were at our wit's end, and I saw pain and grief, and I thought, well, what were they doing in the civil rights movement? And started to ask elders in the South, in different movements from AIM to the Young Lords, Black Panther Party, how did you hold grief and trauma during the 60s and 70s? And started to ask healers, how are you holding grief and trauma for movements? Um, all movements, right? Labor, migrant justice, racial justice, reproductive justice. How is it showing up? How does it manifest? And wouldn't you like to be at the table of strategy? Why do healers get separated outside of strategy and liberation ideas? Um, Why are we not at the center of movement tables? Um, Or centering healing as an integral strategy to political liberation at movement tables? And people said, well, yeah, I'm about that. Energy healers, earth-based, body-based healers being asked that question, who I knew were already politically oriented because they were doing work as an extension of their social justice work. They were doing healing as social justice organizers, right? So then we wrestled with, because the term politicized healer, it wasn't out there. And I would say that we started, we started using it in 2007 because we noticed, of course, not everyone's political and how they're doing healing work. They could be perpetuating the same violence, harm, and abuse. But what we had to name was, how is it rooted in place? That we had to make a distinction between people who were doing healing work that were perpetuating the harms and abuses and violence of the medical industrial complex, meaning that they were still based in a Western based model of care. They weren't rooted in harm reduction. They weren't rooted in racial justice, gender justice, trans justice. They needed to be politicized. (laughs) But, and we were working with organizers who were taking up the bandwidth of doing healing work as part of their political organizing. So that's why Kindred, Southern Healing Justice Collective, that's how we came to be. And the term healing justice, I'll be honest, we started, when I started gathering people and saying, do you want to be liberatory in your practice as healers? And do we want to move as a team so that we're working with the base of movement building organizations and actually asking movement to integrate healing strategies into their plan? But what we also noticed at that moment is leaders identifying that they needed places to grieve, to hold trauma, 
but they had no language for it. Now, let's be clear, there's an anti-violence movement, but that anti-violence movement tended to be only connected to or through a gender justice lens. So we'd start going to migrant justice meetings talking about trauma. And, and it was interesting, right? Because what comes up around trauma, around massive, around massive ice raids or detainment or having your children taken from you, um, and never seeing them again, it's all understanding that trauma. We understood that there hadn't been political space to hold the grief and analysis around trauma or working with racial justice organizers who had been doing abolitionist campaigns, um, trying to stay executions, anywhere from staying executions to shutting down prisons that were restless and tired and exhausted and didn't have a place to grieve when they were losing campaigns and having people being executed. You know, you know how this looks. So we were just asking the question, where are their gaps? And even on honoring and understanding as lay people not psychiatrists, not therapists, not social workers. How do you talk about trauma in on the ground, down to earth, useful ways so that our communities can actually wrestle with trauma? And after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, the manifestation of that became very real because no matter if you were surviving those storms or actually surviving the police, the CIA, the FBI after the storms, you were watching people have a whole collective grief of witnessing what was happening. And to see that level of consciousness around, I'm, I'm grieving, I'm enraged because of this trauma of what happened to our people in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, not from the storm, but from the state, it opened the door to have a political dialogue on trauma generationally and collectively in ways I had never witnessed in my lifetime as an organizer. And now we see it again in Mijente, right? Not one more deportation campaign. In Black Lives Matter, these different movement building active uh, moments in time that are catalyzing where are we talking about generational trauma? But in the early 2000s, that was not on the agenda. And so I would say healing justice came because it was ready to be reemerged. Was healing happening during slavery, during um, in mass genocide, attempted genocide of indigenous people? Absolutely. But we weren't harnessing it as a political strategy or I don't know that, that history. So we wanted to make sure this was present and that healers were at the table this time so that if we, if we lost connection of who those healers were in the past, we damn well are going to know who the healers are at the table in the future. That's where healing justice came from. Much love to Kara Page for joining us to close out this season of La Cura Podcast. You can learn more about healing histories and changing frequencies and all of Kara Page's beautiful work at carapage.co. You can also learn about Kindred Southern Healing Collective at healingtrauma.com. At healingcollectivetrauma.com. Follow Kara Page on Instagram at changingfrequencies. frequencies.
If you love this episode, make sure you share it with your friends. Also, subscribe to our podcast so you're notified as soon as the next episode drops. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. A very special thanks to Phil Circus for all his support and guidance on all aspects of production of this new season for La Cura. Thank you, Phil.